0: reduce the feedback loop is the the number one thing mm. um and i've seen people commit and wait for the build server to create an android build before yeah. they'll install it on the device i'm like just plug the usb cable in. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> welcome to our script we're back after a little break talking about engineering culture hey rio how you doing i'm good thanks how are you josh i'm all right it's been a mad few months hasn't it It
0: has indeed yeah busy busy but yeah you're getting your ha- house turned te-
1: apart yep yeah, uh so we're sitting in uh, a newly rele- renovated kitchen which is great yeah it's lovely um a bit more echoey than the last one not as acoustically beneficial yeah and builders
0: <laughs> are chucking water and soil the- under <laughs> the, the roof of <laughs> your kitchen
1: yeah so um i'm currently getting my loft renovated so that there's no roof on my house which is completely stress-free which is enjoyable yeah um I, and you're in the midst of a, a house movie self as well yep which is going sideways so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's all good so every everything's fine um there's different parts of my house falling from the sky and you're unsure whether you're gonna be in the same house the next few weeks but but the
0: good thing is we're here to talk to you about devops and engineering culture, <laughs> <Exactly. so.
1: laughs> well i was hoping you'd say that <laughs> um but no we've had a little break haven't we um and um you know life life kind of got got the best of me really uh we've been very busy but very glad to be back talking to you about certain things back in the spring of it yes i think what you can hear there is possibly the roof being taken off of my house as well so there's definitely going to be a fair few sound effects in this episode we've got louis here as well so i was sure there'll be some barking as well so yeah all all the noises
0: cool so why don't we start talking about release processes now yes. these come in all shapes and sizes depending on the problem at hand but yes the the very basics of it are continuous integration so mm. yeah making sure that you have a branch so that people often merge their work into yeah um, and that's quite important but you yeah it sounds daft but some places you go you, you see this sort of getting missed this early yeah obvious step um and yeah people do things like long live branches and things like that
1: i think it's um it's interesting is it because i know you know parallax has done this stuff for a very long time um you know i think when when um on previous episodes we talked about some of the things that you guys do at parallax and um not everywhere does this some people don't use git some people use git but maybe just get pollen production <laughs> a bit kind of like a an ftp style deployment yep sounds quite terrifying Um uh, but you know I, th- I think these are these are some of the things that um i've definitely taken for granted when i've worked with more mature teams and, and more experienced teams um uh, is, that, is that is that is that good to say i don't know if i can say that
0: yeah no that makes sense i think um unless you have been burnt by some of the problems of not doing continuous integration you might just be blindly cracking on and mm. making the best of it um
1: yeah just muscling I, I think the key thing is you know w- what do you do to get your changes into a production environment or in front of the customer um you know the, the, it depends on the type of application depends how complicated it is. is it a website is it a, is it a ios app that you need to deploy to an app store or something like that yeah um there's various different ways to do it but the key really is how you how you iterate on the product right and that's what continuous integration is is pointing towards
0: yeah so when you're working on a feature and the rest of the team's working on other bits and pieces if you just branch off and start coding away there might be some subtle or small changes in the application that happens um, while you're making those adding those features in yeah and you, you're basically pushing all this risk towards the launch date mm. whereas if you get get merged in straight away and you've put it behind a feature flag or something yeah you've you you've you're bringing all that risk to now and tackling it. You're making that painful yeah. um, integration happen now. I am.
1: And I guess that's the thing: is about reducing the element of surprise around and the risk around that kind of production deployment. Some people um, sometimes do releases at the end of sprints. Sometimes they do more continuous releases. Um, sometimes they do big bang releases. Which um, you know there, there are reasons for all of those different approaches. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you might have to do a big bang release due to dependencies around an application or the way that a release is done. Yeah. Uh, but I guess the key is to try and remove as much risk as possible and try and release as incrementally as possible.
0: I mean, I think the clue's in the name with big bang release. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sometimes it does
1: explode. <laughs> Often <laughs> I, I think you know it's it's hard to get that right when you're coordinating a lot of different kind of chunks of the release, aren't you? So I think yeah. continuous small small releases, um, hidden behind feature flags, fantastic. Yeah. If if you launch
0: a feature behind a feature flag, you can yeah, when your migrations in production, you yeah. add the new tables in, whatever it is, the third party services. That can all be put in place, hidden away from the user, and then you, you your release is as boring as possible. It's just toggling a ball yeah. served from somewhere. We use launch darkly on a few clients. Yeah. But you could roll your own there's a nice little ruby package yeah um
1: i've seen it in um even with things like um vault and console as well using them as just key value stores for features and things there's,
0: yeah you could just use a blob of something in a
1: database somewhere yeah it doesn't really matter yes i, I guess um it doesn't really matter actually um I, I think the key there is there's loads of different ways you can do that so roll out a percentage-based rollout of features too there's, there's loads of ways to continue to reduce the risk of the, those releases um I think a key thing that ties into that as well is versioning, um how you version your releases and how you make versions live. yeah Um also how if you do kind of rolling deploys, which you probably should be doing because you don't want to ever, ever run the risk of, of downtime and um feature flagging as as you already mentioned. So um yeah, I think the release process is is quite key and actually quite instrumental to engineering culture in general. And I think one of the things this episode is about, really, is how you how you can promote the best engineering culture, which ultimately leads to develop happiness, which leads to better products, in my eyes.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, versioning can be tricky, uh, depending on why you're versioning and who is who it's for. Yeah. But in a large organization we're working with, we have we have two npm packages that we've made, mm. and we need to be very strict with Semver because there's there's maybe twelve teams building products on top of those packages right? so we can't easily know all the implications of a change that we make in that package mm. so you you would follow what happens in open source so you if you think you're making a breaking change you increment a different part of the version number and you use that semantic versioning properly um whereas in in projects where that's not needed uh the versioning p- prematurely versioning and Packaging up everything into little pieces can actually slow you down yeah. um, for no added benefit, especially if you the same team's working on the package as they are on the project.
1: Yeah, uh, I think as well it gets even more complicated when you start to introduce things like microservices and how the contracts between different microservices work, um, backwards compatibility, depending on how they're deployed, um, all those fun things.
0: Yeah, yeah but we've seen teams where their workflow to add a line of code is awful because they, they go into the package that that only this project uses yeah. and then do a commit wait for a build bump the version publish it to npm and then go through the whole cycle with all the other elements of the projects bumping that version up yeah that in a mono repo that would have been one commit yeah and then get on with your life <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so I've,
1: I've um i've been in in yeah horrendous situations where you kind of almost dread touching those packages because you know they're just so entwined in the rest of the <laughs> the dependency tree. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, cool. So, so around the release process, when your application's out there, you want to be able to monitor it. And that application monitoring is very important. Yep. How do you guys
0: do it? I like Booksnag. Yep. I think it's good because it can run on the client side. It can run server side. It collects a nice little trail of breadcrumbs up to the error. Right. So you can sort of piece together the bits of the puzzle and recreate that bug. Nice. Um, and it's not too expensive. There is also Sentry, which is good. And yeah. uh, there's an open source version.
1: Yes. I, I use century quite a bit at the moment. It's, um, it's really good. Yeah.
0: Um, I think if you were doing a really, really big project, just one, yeah. makes total sense to so run your own infrastructure, collect your own Sentry events. You control where the data is stored.
1: Yeah, I think for certain clients and things like that, you want to be careful where the data is transmitted. Um, yeah, It's quite tricky with, with a lot of these really amazing uh, engineering dev tools um, because they can often shave months off the cycle of uh, the build cycle, but also you're sending a lot of that sensitive data sometimes to third-party services. Yes. Um, it's kind of difficult. Yeah,
0: and sometimes they're not so careful with that data. Yeah. No. There was a company called Flare who had a bit of a mix-up with one of their deployments mm. and the error messages from your application being emailed to other customers, which is just not good. No, especially
1: when you know they, they might include sensitive environment data and things like that.
0: Which they, yeah, often do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, But, you know, I think there's been a lot of um, good best practices that have started to be um, kind of put into a lot of these products now. You know, there's, there's lots of um sanitization of that that the environment variables and things before they're sent along and, and yeah
0: things that look like secrets are automatically
1: hashed and things like that yeah yeah, yeah definitely but um but yeah i, th- I think the, the key thing around application monitoring is end-to-end tracing through the stack so if it's uh in an application where you've got a front end you've got a back end they're all talking together um often a lot of the services used um what's commonly called like request id's which ties together a single request from one point in the application to another allows you to dig deeper into uh, the context of an error or something like that.
0: Yeah, so in AWS land, that's called X-Ray, and each request gets an ID which flows through into every yeah. nook and cranny of the request into the microservices, wherever whatever Lambda's running it. And then, in theory, you can patch it all back together and see what happened. That's great.
1: But is there a dashboard where that's centralized then? Yeah, Yeah. yeah
0: they've got an X-Ray dashboard, and yeah, it's, it is good. But I assume in other platforms they've got similar...
1: Yeah, things. been working with GCP quite a bit, so
0: similar, similar tooling. Oh, nice. Um, they're quite. They're catching up quite a bit, aren't they?
1: They are in some areas. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Amazon seem to add a new product to their their drop down menu every week.
0: No, oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think even an Amazon employee would know all the products. <laughs>
1: yeah, it should be kind of like your um, your interview questions should <laughs> name all of them. Yeah. Um, so another part of one of the main things, arguably, about engineering culture um, is kind of how you how you ship better quality products and to me there's loads of things that make this um maybe so you've got testing you've got linting you've got how you approach um PR reviews and things like that all the things that I'd call kind of like general developer etiquette yep um what's your kind of what's your kind of top few tips you've got you know, you've got a new starter um who, who's coming on board the first week what, what are the kind of things that you're kind of setting your expectations with them in terms of this is what we expect from you?
0: So we're doing a thing where we sort of explain what the core best practices are, like linting, having you ready to config in the project. Yep. Um, but then also this, the stack that we'd prefer for new builds, mm-hmm. which is this sort of T3 stack that we've been uh, using, yeah. uh, which is yeah, TypeScript from the beginning, trpc so you change the types on the back end it fails if it's not updated in the front end mm. things like that um but yeah because we are an agency slash consultancy we do have lots of weird and wonderful projects where we may have not started it it might not be greenfield mm. so yeah each each project will have its sort of different baseline unfortunately mm. it's hard to get everything the
1: same yeah and it's kind of like some, some of there are probably some costs where you'd be like, you know what, that's just, that's just going to stay in that, that technology because we're not going to touch it much and we just need to light touch maintain it. Or some of it's kind of like, well, we need to bring this in line with the general stack that we're using across the kind of modern projects.
0: Yeah, at the very least, every project you commit to, it should run tests and yeah. deploy somewhere Yeah, in isolation from everything else. Yeah, um, that would be sort of my bare minimum. Yeah, And then, yeah, everything else sort of layered on top
1: i think the good thing is with um with linting being a lot more popular these days um particularly with um you know popular linting configurations being open-sourced it kind of reduces the friction for a lot of people to agree on some of those common common things um you know a while ago i think there was just a hell of a lot of bike shedding around oh yeah i mean it's just pointless conversation to be honest um you know ultimately does it really matter um, ultimately as long as you're all writing to the same standards yeah you know there's, there's definitely bigger fish to fry in terms of trying to try to work on a big project
0: absolutely as long as it's consistent you get used to the syntax pretty quickly yeah. um i used to be a big fan of standard js so the project i started are in that yep. and then front-end dev team think that i'm an idiot <laughs> and, <laughs> and then josh came along and said sorry you're, you're wrong <laughs> the, yeah and so the, the semicolons and everything but you know it, it doesn't really matter as long as it's consistent within the project within that client hmm. uh within that team yeah it's the team that needs to agree on the standards they want to set yeah um, and rather than us setting it at a consultancy level yeah get the project team to all agree because it at the end of the day it's then have to work with it So. Yeah if they're happy there's
1: no point you do take something you're not going to have to work on or or it's not going to influence your day-to-day really, is it
0: yeah that's it but yeah with the linting stuff if you can get that running and you see icd and it opens a pr with the fixes yeah then you know you might have an angry dev for a couple of days but they'll get used to it (laughs)
1: yeah i I think as well with linting get it get it in early uh, as early as possible oh yeah you don't want really noisy prs every time someone touches a part of the code base um it's not that's not helpful.
0: Yeah. And start as strict as possible. Yeah. So if you've got TypeScript, make sure you're not hiding the warnings and things like that. Yeah. yeah it sounds obvious, but yeah. you don't want to leave those to the end. Um, no. They're there for a reason.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, the, I'll, I'll be honest, there's a few solo projects I've done where I've literally just disabled quite a lot of the integrals. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that it's it's less uh, less impactful if it's just you that you know you're probably going to be able to ever work on
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's some smart things you can do. Slight tangent, but things like TS reset, which it kind of takes some of the um, problems away. Mm-hmm. So um, when you pass JSON, it it comes back as any when it should actually be unknown and mm-hmm. things like that. So it just tidies up loads of little things. Yeah, and you don't have to keep like fixing them yeah. um, or keep adding workarounds.
1: Yeah, that's um. Uh, a, lot, a lot of these tools actually have auto correction as you said so it's quite useful so I use um, RuboCop quite a lot on Ruby projects Oh nice It's really good does um, does auto correction a lot. I've actually learned a lot of the new Ruby language features through linting because it tells you actually there's better ways to do things with, with modern features so Nice Worth a look um, So testing wise it's often a, a tricky um, topic for discussion in terms of testing what's the most important type of testing if you're going to have to focus on Say you've got a project that you've not worked on for a while, it's not got any tests, you need to start working on this project a lot more formally um, and you need to make sure it's stable. What are the first things that you're looking at for a test suite?
0: Functional testing is your your biggie. Yep. Does it work? Does it meet the requirements? Mm -hmm. Um, Then you've got manual and exploratory testing. And then there's a load of testing that usually happens right at the end of the project, which I believe you need to shift left towards the start of the project. Yep. So that's things, this is more catered towards mobile apps, but like memory leaks, Mm. security issues, networking issues, performance stuff, like try it on 2G early on um, because you get some like weird state stuff. Um, Try and shift that as close to the development as you can, Mm. ideally during development, um, rather than once you're getting it ready for the App Store, because it's too late then.
1: Yeah, I, I guess as well, so taking um, Chatloop as an example, um, you know, something that ran in beta for a while, and uh, now you're in public beta, I think.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So that's a good example of trying to get that in the hands of real users as quickly as possible, because ultimately there'll be conditions that they will reproduce that you'll never really see in that, that testing cycle.
0: Yeah, yeah. Dodgy internet is the worst. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's really nasty to test for. Um, the, you can simulate it, um, but it is... it's quite frustrating
1: it's quite hard to simulate as well every every use case with patchy connectivity and especially when you're integrating with third-party services as well it's quite tricky to reproduce that sort of stuff yeah or some requests
0: come through and others don't and the Mm. the ui doesn't have a way to easily deal with that so it's come out of its skeleton state but it's still bust
1: (laughs) (laughs) well I, i guess that leads on to another area that i think is really important around code quality and its local dev environments now might sound like a, a bit of an obvious one for a lot of people, but I think there's there's been a few occasions where I've walked into a situation where there's there's not actually local development environments set up for you to run these services or apps locally. Uh, maybe they're using shared images to, to develop on or something like that. Yeah. Um. Everyone has their reasons for this, but ultimately, getting that app working as, as close to local as possible is super important. Not just for the feedback loop, but also to ensure that you can reproduce the environment which. That thing's meant to be. Oh, Yeah,
0: yeah. To reduce the feedback loop is the the number one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen people commit on wait for the build server to create an Android build before yeah. they'll install it on the device. I'm like, just plug the USB cable in <laughs> <Yes>. please. Because um, <laughs> 'cause you've got hot reload and stuff. You want to make sure you don't break mm-hmm. those really, really fast feedback loops. Yeah. Make sure people are actually using them. And then yeah, you fall back to these slower feedback loops if you have to, but yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. pretty key.
1: I think this is a really important thing, though. So, you know, a lot of this is now of malice, or, or it's just misunderstanding how to use some of these tools. If you're a, if you're a associate or junior engineer coming to a project, you might not know that you can just plug the USB cable in and use an emulator or use the real device to test things on. And yep. um, this is where I think really important um, kind of cultural trends, like proper documentation, comes into play. Um, yeah, you know, onboarding a new uh, a new developer and making sure they understand how how those things work
0: yeah well there's a little swiss army knife of tricks that you build up over the years as a programmer like it might be completely obvious to us to spin up ngrok and Mm. test on a real device that new web page that we just built yeah but a junior would have no idea Mm. or how that even works but
1: yeah and often you'll show them something i'll be like oh my god this is amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but you know these are the things where you can easily lose hours in a day uh, and, and just kind of really lose your Kind of flow with building uh, exciting apps, so definitely worth worth a look. And um, the only other thing I was going to mention around the kind of code quality side of things is um, something I've been doing more recently uh, in recent years, which is ARB, Ar- Ar- Architecture Review Board. It's, it's quite a formal name for what it doesn't need to be something that formal, but ultimately it's just a way for you to get some some of the core engineers together and discuss the the architectural approach to building some of the apps. So it might be that you're trying to bring in a new technology on a on a tech radar or you might be trying to propose a major change to a bunch of services or apps across the board. So I guess for Paralyze, that could be something like we're thinking about introducing a new part of the tech stack as our default for the framework. Yeah. I mean, admittedly,
0: that's not something we have, but that sounds like a really good idea. Um,
1: It's just a a good way to get the right people talking, I find. It's not not necessarily about the physical sign-off. It's about the socialization of um, a a big change, making sure people know what's going on. Well, in fact, it's probably
0: required to comply with iso 9001 and 27001 or at least if you're going to fold a new new tool then you can at least look at the potential implications of that
1: yeah definitely i think with like dependency review and things like that um but you know certainly when you're working in more regulated environments it's it's really helpful to ensure that you know if you've got some you know if you've got some infosec people on that call as well it really helps to socialize that information make sure you're not gonna fall into um into a tricky situation further down the line where you try to ship something and someone saying you can't or yeah, obviously some of these are maybe some more of the politics of, of larger organizations, but they're still very much a real problem,
0: yeah yeah getting getting a new process or tool through with a large org is often a struggle. it's an not there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, like we already have a tool that does this, I'm like, yeah, but it's rubbish,
1: yeah <laughs> yeah now we have two tools yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah but no alb a- it, it's good it, it sounds scary but ultimately it's just a forum for for good tech discussion um and it's really important to have a good agenda for those sort of things because otherwise you just end up with loads of people chatting each other yeah which is important um i have a note here for programming patterns as well i'm not sure if it really falls as much into um the cultural side as much as just the general kind of skill set for the job, more, I think. Um, how much do you go into programming patterns with the engineering teams you, yourself? Do you often talk through different patterns or is it more implicit? Yeah, when we're talking about specific problems, we will.
0: Um, but yeah, in day-to-day, probably not, not loads. Um, but yeah, I think... Yeah, it depends what sort of thing that we're building because in React Native land, there's certain patterns that are just the standard so you make everything a hook if you can
1: yeah you're not going fight, to fight it are you
0: so like launch darkly in their docs they recommend creating a singleton class for launch darkly but then that goes against the grain of rec native so you make it into a hook mm. which has this, you can make the hook have similar um s- similar features to what a singleton would give you and mm. um, just make sure you've only got that one instance so yeah it, it depends doesn't it um and yeah it, what about yourself? You, do you sort of do it from that sort of engineering manager point of view?
1: Um, it depends. It, it depends on the it depends on the problem you're solving. As you said, um, because a lot of the time, if you're fighting a framework's functionality, you probably need to go with what they've what they've kind of laid out for it. So if it's hooks or something similar. But I also love those kind of greenfield projects where you can where you're building something out, like like a library, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, you'll be looking at different patterns like adapter pattern or whatever, factories and all sorts of stuff. I really love getting people together and talking through the different pros and cons of different patterns um, because I think really interesting discussions come out of that and you can really understand how different people think. Yeah. Because actually you can probably solve a multi, you know, loads of different patterns can solve the same problem in different ways.
0: The the author of Vue.js was talking about patterns and the way to write things because he was talking, he touched briefly on um, like AI generated code yeah. because he's saying it's completely useless for him because he's writing a library yeah. and all the code out there are pretty much just projects yeah. and how are you, projects using libraries are very different from libraries <laughs> yeah. and so yeah. it's not
1: That's that's the fun thing though, especially because as a consumer of a library it's, I think it's, um, this is what one of the things that I kind of fell in love with Ruby with really, is, is really thinking about the consumers of libraries and plugins and frameworks it's like how how does it make people feel using these how does it make people think Mm -hmm. um and how how does writing it in a certain way unlock different possibilities for the type of app you're building yeah and i think that's a much more human approach um which is part of the excitement of programming for me like you know reacts reacts really honed its kind of public api over the recent years and that's obviously to try and increase adoption but also make sure people enjoy using the framework and can use it as effectively as possible
0: right yeah absolutely
1: um, so yeah so i think i think there's there's definitely an important place for documenting and discussing program patterns as part of engineering culture um it's just that you can't you can't lean too heavily on them you you definitely can't be at a point where you're gonna force certain patterns for certain things i think you need the flexibility to have an open mind with that sort of stuff
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: Which is why not many people like using Java these days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's still everywhere, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, it is. It is everywhere. <laughs> um, cool. So, what's next? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit
0: about infrastructure, so, yeah. tooling setup, um, that kind of thing. So, I think we've mentioned in previous podcasts where we're big one password fans. Yes, and they've actually just launched a new feature around actually managing secrets for
1: deployments and things like that yes um the, the, t- the team uh the team uses stuff to so scott really because you've been using them quite a while haven't you i think yes yeah we the, have command line tools to engage with it and things like that
0: yeah so you make a new project and you commit and it adds you to that project and, yes um yeah it, our deployment pipelines when we use we've got a, one for kubernetes and one for serverless yeah. and it will set up the database and add the secrets to the vault and all that kind of stuff.
1: So do you use that as your sole secret provider now then? Yes. Well, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Of
0: course. Um, For everything that we host, we would do that out of the box. But because we're moving much more consultancy now and much larger projects, um, they'll more than likely have a load of software already running in Azure or AWS or whatever. So you just have to go with what they're doing, but try and implement the equivalent of what you've got yeah. into their infrastructure.
1: There could be some really interesting um, intersections of those two approaches as well. Like if your CI C D setups use one password, there could be a way for you to use those vaults to then copy into the, the kind of parent environment or whatever production is or Yeah. Yeah. That's quite cool.
0: Um, I mean as long as it's encrypted and you've got a way to log and see the activity on the secret mm. then you're good. Yeah. Um although a lot of I think a lot of methods don't actually abide by that but <laughs> um, <laughs> but then it's like yeah what's it vault by Hashicorp.
1: yeah I, I use vault quite a bit and console for um, different kind of um, different methods of deployment as well so yeah there's, there's loads of different tools out there but as you said as long as it's encrypted and you can access it when you need to um, uh, and if you should have access to it most importantly yeah um, you know zero trust um, is something that I push quite heavily zero trust approach in general to um, ensuring no one ideally can have access to certain environments where they don't need it.
0: Yeah, there is a really, really good new feature in AWS, and I'm not just plugging it because of my Amazon ties, but, <laughs> but basically you, in a QA or staging environment, you can, you can give a script or a deployment pipeline full, full beans access for a little bit, yeah. just in that QA environment. And then based on the usage pattern, you can generate the policy to lock it down. Oh, that's nice. So you run the deployment once mm. and then it goes, right, it used these things, make that a policy. That's and nice. then you take that code and commit it into your repo. Yeah, that's and great. And then you know exactly what, what it's using. Yeah. It's like whack a mole, honestly. <laughs> you're like, yeah. um, this this permission on S3, this on Lambda. Oh, no, I forgot this one in AWS Gateway. Um, in, yeah, yeah, API yeah. Gateway. And you just sort of go around like whack a mole and then. Yeah, it still doesn't work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is though, you know, you're like, oh, why is this request failing? I have no idea. Or, yeah. and, and that's why I think infrastructure as generally is generally is super important. Having reproducible environments um, that you can deploy to different deploy targets, um, you know, depending on how big your DevOps team is, if you have a DevOps team at all, um, you know, is Kubernetes a good thing to look at? How do you approach things with Terraform? There's loads of different options in the space. Um, And loads of different um, decisions to make depending on how often you're deploying, how often you need to scale and move things around, how portable the environment's need to be. Um, Loads of decisions to make along the way, but the most important thing is to ensure it is reproducible. Yeah, um, Yeah, definitely. It's very difficult if you just set up on your machine and no one knows how it works.
0: Yeah, so the the cloud version of it works on my machine is ClickOps, is what people call it, and this is where you go into... AWS or Google Cloud, and you create resources by clicking around, Yeah, don't do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Unless no. you're learning, in which case, fine. Yeah, But
1: but when you've done that, make sure you know how to preserve the states of what you've made.
0: Yeah, I wish there was an easy way to turn the clicks into mm. Terraform or CloudFormation, but there isn't, <laughs> I don't think.
1: Well, there's there's some services that kind of generate that for you in a way, and then you can, de- you can download the config as YAML or something like that, but there's always a few things missed along the way, so it, it's good to get a good, a good kind of iterative approach to this. You know, chipping away at a config, putting it into CI, look, looking the, looking the environment, be generated as part of the CI process. Yeah, um, and I think this kind of leads on to another point, which is data residency and kind of regional deployments. I'm doing a lot of that lately, in terms of um, some of the customers we've been working with. Um, where where certain instances are deployed or where data is um, stored is really important for um, for different international laws. Um, Infrastructure as code is really helpful in this in this way because you can just go, well, we need that, but over there, or yeah, you know, and you, there's no way to
0: hide. You know exactly who's deployed what yeah. and when. And auditors love that. Um, security professionals love that. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. You can't go wrong really. Um if the only way to deploy a thing is to write it into a code base and commit it yeah. and push it, then you you're squeaky clean really.
1: Yeah. I think it's um that's another tactic from framework authors, right? Make it really hard to do the wrong thing. Um yeah. Make make it make it really have a lot of friction to, to introduce issues in that way. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So I think security ties quite heavily into this area, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah.
0: It's it's all the things we just mentioned, so audit trails, um, looking things down. Mm. But yeah, the the big thing at the moment with us is the 27001 making sure that everyone's read the documents that they said they've read, mm. uh, which is <laughs> painful.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you have like a, a bit where you have to kind of tick things off, questionnaires? Have you got any, any interactive versions? Yeah,
0: we've got this new Confluence plugin, which has just sent me about 100 emails last week right (laughs) bits to sign brilliant um but yeah it it is good Mm. but it is also painful isn't it
1: yeah i think i think the best thing you can do with regulatory regulatory compliance bits is accept that you have to do it (laughs) yeah and you need to make it as like a lot of things make it as painless as possible
0: so if you implement it right it is just enough process to make it all work yeah but you can easily go overboard yeah, um, and yeah, the 2014 edition of 9000 um, is obviously that's the quality management. 9001's quality management system, but it is as documentation heavy as you want it to be. Mm. So if you're if you're if you say that the commit log is your documentation, that's fine. Mm. You can do that.
1: I think it depends as well on the on the type of product you're building and the type of people that are going to be using that product as well. So. If you're working in the defence space or the government space, you're probably going to be wanting to pay more attention to things like ISO 27001 and um, and also just have a, a bit more rigor to how you implement those things compared to maybe uh, an app that is is used by a different audience or or main it's mainly back to I guess some of the essentials of GDPR like who if you're a controller of the data how you're storing it all that sort of stuff yeah like a, a healthcare
0: app. Is yeah. going to be very different from, I don't know, like a social media, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. They're going to have very, very different requirements.
1: Well, if history treats, uh, teaches anything, as well, if they definitely will have a lot less <laughs> 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 rigour for <laughs> some of those social media apps. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's important to really recognise the, the the right level of compliance that you need for certain industries and clients and apps. Really, so definitely do your homework and definitely, if you can, tie in things like the um, like the release process. So. You know, if you've got things like um, con- uh, quality gates where you have to have certain sign-off for certain releases, you can make sure that all these things are satisfied before um, you put a release out. Um, again, it depends on how big the kind of companies you're working with, and how much how many really politics involved, and and how much how difficult it is to release. Yes, yeah. basically. Yeah, definitely. Um, because you know you're going into the world of change management. There, you're going into service desk territory and and all of that sort of stuff. So
0: yeah, and then yeah, don't. Don't really mark your own homework if you can avoid it as well. Um, get the external pen tester in if it's yeah. critical, and show them your risk register so they already know kind of what areas they need to be looking at. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's really good to to outsource that stuff, um, mainly because testing your own stuff rarely gives the results you expect. <laughs> yeah, um, you know how the product works. You built, you know the weak the weak points that you'll you'll avoid. Um, yeah. And and they've also spent a
0: lot of time hacking into other products so they know that oh that uh, api endpoint over there has got an id on it i bet if i increment that by one i'll get some other bit of data that maybe i shouldn't yeah yeah and completely obvious stuff if you do that but as a developer it might just be a single line of code that you haven't really thought about yeah um
1: and then this is, you know, depending on the kind of product building, you might want to offer a book bounty to, to the community. You might, you might have um, some of this stuff exposed to engineers that might want to have a go. Um, if you do, make sure you have really clear um, kind of codes of conduct and engagement <laughs> protocols. Yeah. Um, you know, responsible um, disclosure, um, things like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, book bounties are good. I think we mentioned some in a previous episode, didn't mm-hmm. we? But yeah.
1: They can be good, they can be really good, um, and people are going to be poking around anyway, so you may as well pay them if they find something bad. <laughs> yeah, you don't want them to feel
0: like they're blackmailing you by t- getting in touch and saying, I found a book, but can you pay me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Which is often how security researchers feel a little bit, but they are doing valuable work, and yeah. work is time, and time is money, so...
1: Yeah, absolutely. Give them some money. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess it's also worth noting that you can spend a huge amount of money on external reviews. Um, so be careful in in the brief that you give to those external agencies because, yeah, the scope of those projects can grow arms and legs quite quickly um, if you're not clear on, on what you're expecting to get out of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the final thing that I had on the list really was just documentation. And this covers quite a broad range of things. Um, yep. We've kinda of touched on it already, but um you know, onboarding, offboarding, documentation, it sounds like you've got quite a good process set up internally for for getting people up to speed.
0: Yeah, yeah, we do. Our onboarding is now really streamlined. There's a big checklist and everyone knows who's doing what to get yes. people into the company and then out. Um but yeah, it's it's a good it's quite a slick process now. he yes. says. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some more hiccups as we add more more process. Um, but yeah, it's we use um jump cloud. So right. you add a user in jump cloud and it adds them to basically everything. Nice. Um but yeah, it just means you need to get the really expensive subscription version of every SaaS product <laughs> yeah. to make
1: that work. Yeah, uh, everything needs the enterprise tier. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you want SAML, like ten thousand pounds, please. <laughs> yeah. I think um I think the key thing there is make it easy to offboard people as well. Um yeah. often not something that's paid much attention to, but you know, if if you're giving everyone access in a click, and they can get access to you know the keys to the castle, they also need the abilities to have that revoked very easily too. Absolutely, yeah. Because if it's an instrumental member of the team that uh, might have helped set up things like secret management or something, for example, you need to ensure that um, you know you're securing the securing the the kind of stack as as easy as you're giving access to. It.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, with the login tied through Jump Cloud, you can set a policy for encrypted drives, and then when you remove them, they can't get to that data anymore. Yeah. Things like that. So that's great. Uh, it is good. Um, open API documents, something that we were going to chat about. It's really good. Um, used to be called Swagger. Um, but yeah, it can sometimes be lacking on certain client projects. But it, if you work in cross teams, is it's invaluable.
1: Yeah. I think I think more just for communication because I know you can do loads of things like generate, um, API examples and, and things like that off the back of it which is all great but for me it's more of a communication tool um, if you if you define the schema of something in YAML you can use that as a portable format you can use it in testing to validate that things all match up Yeah. Um, but for me it's, it's also a really great document to use it something like an ARB forum where you're, you're talking with engineers about a bunch of changes that are coming up you can easily diff those changes in YAML um, OpenAPI is just a really great tool for that yeah uh, I think I mentioned
0: one of the projects that we run. Um, Josh, who runs one of our teams, um, not you, Josh, a different Josh, (laughs) (laughs) he implemented this thing where it it looks at the OpenAPI spec. And then when you add an endpoint and commit, it tells you off. Mm. See, that's great. So it wouldn't let me do a build um because yeah. i just i just willy-nilly added an input, didn't i <laughs> it's like nope you need to document it first i was like oh, annoying but correct
1: yeah <laughs> see that that's great isn't it like, an example where it's hard to do the wrong thing there so
0: yeah um it, i mean that little bit of pain and yeah. because i was already thinking about it it didn't take long to do but if that had just been left and yeah. deployed it would have never been documented
1: but that's that's an example where ci is a method of documentation There, you know ci is not letting you continue until you've driven through those hoops yeah you can give give people little slaps
0: um you just want to make sure the level's set right you don't want to be yeah
1: yeah you want to be able to hack on stuff rapidly iterate without it being annoying
0: yeah like if basic linting like a missed i could don't know like some spacing's a bit off Mm. that shouldn't stop deployments no but if you like warning or error level, then that should.
1: Yeah. Um Yeah, that's that's about right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If you just if you're just hacking away, commenting things out, trying to get something working, you don't want it to be telling you off about that. This variable has not been used. Like, yeah, give a shit at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> right now I'm just trying to get it working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, there's there's another thing that I have a bit of a peeve with, which is around Slack. And Slack's obviously become important in every yeah. company. Well
0: we've set a retention policy now
1: of 180 days so
0: everything gets deleted which is at first everyone was very upset (laughs) um and then we implemented it and touch wood i haven't heard anyone complain yeah um, because you just sort of forget but now that's making people go oh well maybe we shouldn't just be using slack (laughs) search as our documentation
1: yeah that's that's Um, the thing like have have clear guidance for i mean slack is kind of real-time temporary communication it's a fucking hellscape to use. It's is like past documentation across
0: everything, isn't it? Oh, I was I, I was just trying to search for one password to, to pull out that example of the the t- new tool that they'd released. Yeah, I can't find it. It's it's just, <laughs> it's, just it's just so much noise.
1: The worst thing is when you got a channel and someone's like, "I've pinned loads of messages to the channel. If you ever need this," I'm like, "No, <laughs> pin by all means, pin Confluence docs or something like that." Yeah, absolutely fine. But yeah, it, it, you can't rely on Slack for permanent. Documentation. The problem is, like with everything these days, everyone's building in functionality and all these tools to be the same fucking thing. Yeah. So you've got Slack articles or posts or whatever they're called where people are using that for more permanent documentation.
0: Yeah. I think Slack know-how to make it a sticky product it doesn't necessarily mean that it's better for your day-to-day. So.
1: so as part of the I think this is a really important thing for as part of your onboarding, say what tools you expect to use for what purposes. Um I think it's really important to say never put anything sensitive in slack like secrets never use it for permanent documentation all these sorts of guidelines that often get forgotten about really yeah 100 percent.
0: i really like slack huddles because they are explicitly sort of ephemeral aren't they like they yeah you know that that's just a conversation yeah and if you want to document something you document it
1: yeah i'm a big fan of huddles actually it's like walking into a room and just shouting at people
0: yeah it's good and you can you can hash stuff out quite quickly without it turning into a thread of doom yeah
1: no i i that's the other thing as well, I think, trying to get people to understand when you do write something down in Slack, even if it is temporary documentation or something like that, it's really important how you communicate that. Like, try try to author a paragraph of the message properly. Like, don't use slang, don't use abbreviations. Like, try and document it as if it was a public message on something. Give as much of a shit about your Slack message as you do about a tweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which arguably a lot of people don't. No, either. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm agreeing with but you. You. <laughs> see what I, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, when, when you rely on that, as a, you know, especially if you're a distributed team where you rely solely on Slack for communication, how you articulate your thoughts is really important. Yeah. Um, it's really, really, really important.
0: I think um, sometimes Slack's got that sort of water coolery, everyone puts their beak in thing happening mm. as well. Like yeah. you might post a throwaway screenshot or something and then 20 designers come out the woodwork and, <laughs> and like no I just like <laughs> to there's yeah. something out
1: oh uh, you know if you've like if you post this to me there's like the thread says like 40 messages so like, i've made a mistake here yeah. something's gone wrong yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um cool so I, I think that's kind of they're the main the main things that kind of appeal to me around engineering culture there's obviously a ton of stuff we haven't talked about and i think a lot of it still falls back to communication with me. Um, We are a remote first culture now, whether you like it or not. Um, How we communicate is really important. Um, And a lot of that can be done in different ways, whether it's Slack or whether it's in pull requests or, you know, I've seen, I've seen things like where someone's just gone and closed a pull request with no comments and that's quite aggressive if you don't look at them. Yeah.
0: You know. yeah, there's tone isn't there? It's the all to think about but conversations and collaboration the most important thing. If everyone's talking to each other yeah. then those problems don't tend to bubble up as often. Yeah, It really breaks down when you've got a team that doesn't talk to another team. Um, so just be open about what your problems are, what your expectations are um, and figure it out between yourselves before it gets nasty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think often it's um, it's just about building trust and being a bit vulnerable to have that conversation with someone about, about you know, I, I believe it's been different from you, but ultimately, you know, for the greater good, is it worth just uh, agreeing on a common set of semicolons or not? For <laughs> exactly. Uh, but no, I think communication is key, um, always worth focusing on.
0: Lovely. Well, thanks for chatting to me today, Joshua. That's been a good one.
1: Yeah, it's glad to be back on the horse as well. It's taken us a few months, but good to chat to you here. Thanks. Bye. Right, speak soon. Bye. So that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening to Offscript. Don't forget to hit subscribe for more episodes in the future. We also have All Day Hay coming up in May. It's on May the 4th. You can get tickets for the live event in person and also for the stream on heypresents.com. Thanks.